Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Joshua. And I'm Hugh. You're listening to The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. And as usual, we've got plenty to explore, so let's jump right into it. Yeah, some really interesting stories to discuss this week. I plead today to all the kings, princesses, presidents, leaders and ally and friendly nations to help save the Lebanese people from death and prevent the destruction of our country. Lebanon is at a short distance from a social explosion. And the Lebanese are... Joshua, those were the words of Lebanon's caretaker Prime Minister Hassan Tiab, who just a week ago spoke before a gathering of international diplomats. Now, as I'm sure you could tell, Diab is sounding the alarm bells in the international community. And that's because he's seeking global support to bail Lebanon out of what the World Bank has called one of the worst economic crises in modern history. Yeah, calling it a social explosion is pretty strong in terms of warnings. Why is the situation so tense? Well, Lebanon is facing an economic crisis of nearly unprecedented proportions. Fire and fury on the streets of Beirut. Lebanon is descending fast into an economic crisis that the World Bank says will likely rank among the world's worst of the last 150 years. In recent months, that's seen tens of thousands of skilled workers leave the country as food and fuel prices skyrocket. For millions of people in Lebanon, food is becoming a luxury. Prices had already increased five-fold since 2019, before the holy month of Ramadan began. Just in the last few days, pharmacies have gone on strike due to critical medicine shortages, while major power stations are now experiencing outages due to a severe fuel deficit. Two major local power stations have gone offline after they were unable to access fuel shipments due to pending payments. The financial strain is actually so serious that there has even been talk of the Lebanese army collapsing simply out of a sheer lack of resourcing. And of course, tragically, these issues are having a terrible impact on the Lebanese people themselves. I can't get medicine. I can't get milk for my son. I can't get anything. We're completely ruined. We're dying day by day. So what's at the root of Lebanon's current crisis? Yeah, look, answering that question is going to require a quick dive into the Lebanese economy. You see, Lebanon has always been a net importer, which means that the country buys more from the world than it sells back. And this has meant that every year, more money leaves Lebanon than gets put back in. And that imbalance is the first major issue with the Lebanese economy. However, the country's political stability had historically allowed for a strong Lebanese banking sector, So up until recently, Lebanese banks were able to at least keep the balance by encouraging foreign investment, thereby ensuring that money was still being brought back into the economy. The number of refugees fleeing Syria's civil war has grown nearly tenfold in the past year. Lebanon has more than any other country. But with the arrival of over a million refugees following the Syrian civil war, huge financial strain was placed on the Lebanese government. And this revealed the second problem with the country's economy. Due to Lebanon's unique system of government, different religious groups control different parts of the state. And so government spending in Lebanon is often very corrupt, inefficient and excessive. And this has meant that the arrival of refugees pushed the government's finances over the edge, generating a crisis of confidence in the Lebanese currency. 
And then as things were spiraling, COVID-19 hit, shutting down the Lebanese economy at a critical junction. And what happened from there? Well, at this point, the Lebanese banking sector began to face some massive difficulties. Both the government and the national economy were now underperforming. And in practical terms, this meant that it became more expensive to import vital goods into the country. And this is when the famous Lebanese protests really kicked into gear. Thousands of demonstrators have taken to the streets of Beirut in Lebanon for a third day of anti-government protests paralysing the city. Protests have erupted against... However, the country still hadn't seen the worst of the situation because, as we all remember, in August of 2020, this happened. The Beirut explosion knocked the country's most important port out of action. You see, Josh, prior to the blast, Beirut handled 70% of the nation's imports. And so with the explosion, basic goods became even more expensive, while people's wages remained stagnant. But with the controversy of the explosion creating a huge public backlash, Prime Minister Diab resigned. Prime Minister Hassan Diab handed his government's resignation to the president, saying he wanted to stand with the people and fight for change. Although he's still in office because almost a year later, Lebanon's multi-religious, corrupt political elite is yet to form a new government. And this is the heart of the problem. Without a government, Lebanon can't reform its economy or access an IMF bailout. So in a sense, it's sliding off a cliff and it can't even reach out for help. So everything is pretty much hinging on whether Lebanon's feuding political factions can come to an agreement and form a government, while meanwhile the entire country collapses around them. That's right. And in the meantime, those within the Lebanese population with the qualifications or connections are trying to leave the country for safety. And as we've already heard, basic public services such as electricity, health and garbage collection are falling apart. And that's why the caretaker prime minister is warning of this imminent social explosion. It's likely that the only path forward is a three-way solution created by the political elite, the Lebanese population and international institutions in which foreign creditors and corrupt officials are both given the certainty they need to unite and come up with an exit strategy ASAP. But until then, Lebanon will remain in dire straits. What you can hear there are the sounds of people gathered outside the home of former South African President Jacob Zuma last Wednesday. And they were cheering as Zuma's motorcade of nine cars left his driveway and quickly sped off down the main road. And this was no ordinary trip for Zuma. He was being driven 170 kilometres to South Africa's state-of-the-art escort prison to serve a 15-month jail sentence. That sentence was imposed by South Africa's highest court, the Constitutional Court, and it ordered that Zuma should be imprisoned for failing to answer questions put to him by a corruption inquiry. And this was a really significant moment for South Africa. Television stations aired live footage of his motorcade entering the jail. See now there's a motorcade, I'm guessing it's making its way in. We're going to try to get a bit closer there. And it certainly made me wonder, how does an anti-apartheid freedom fighter who served two terms as president wind up in jail? 
Let's rewind a bit. Could you tell us a little bit about Zuma and how he became president in the first place? Sure. So Zuma was a central figure in campaigning for racial equality and opposing the South African apartheid regime during the 1960s and 70s. And his efforts to bring down the regime saw him jailed for 10 years on Robben Island alongside Nelson Mandela. When he was released, he was then exiled from the country. The long, bloody road to equality in South Africa ended in joyous celebration in 1994. At 75, Nelson Mandela, once jailed for treason and sabotage, became president, ending three centuries... But when the apartheid regime finally collapsed in the 1990s, Zuma returned to South Africa, and he began rapidly rising through the country's political ranks, eventually becoming deputy president, which is the second highest position in the country. And that's where things started to go a little off track. So in 2001, while he was still deputy president, Zuma was charged with corruption in relation to a $2 billion arms deal. The deal was to buy fighter aircraft, helicopters, submarines and naval corvettes for the armed forces. In November 1998, cabinet approves the arms deal, which carries... The case was eventually dropped, but that didn't stop the allegations. He was charged with corruption again in 2005, and then with rape later that year. While he wasn't convicted of either charge, he was fired from his role as deputy president. I've come to the conclusion that it would be best to release Honorable Jacob Zuma from his responsibilities as deputy president of the Republic and member of the cabinet. And you'd think that that would kill his political career, but it didn't. Instead, Zuma decided to run for president, and he ran a really popular campaign, promising to reduce poverty and inequality. Uh, my friend, they vote Zuma. My delegates, they vote Zuma. We are proud about Zuma. Zuma is our next president. And he was famously charismatic on the campaign trail. His theme song was called Bring Me My Machine Gun, and he would regularly break into song at events. In the end, he won the 2009 election and went on to serve two terms as president. And how did his presidency unfold? Well, despite his promise to improve living conditions for South Africans, under his watch, the economy went stagnant and unemployment increased. And just like when he was deputy president, he was accused of extensive corruption. And so, Mr President, you and your family are getting richer while South Africans are getting poorer and losing work. So it's alleged that Zuma stole tens of billions of dollars of government funds and that he allowed a family of Indian businessmen to control parts of the government. And in the end, the allegations became too much for even his own party and they forced Zuma to step down in 2018. I have therefore come to the decision to resign as President of the Republic with immediate effect. And I'm gathering that the corruption inquiry that Zuma refused to attend was the one that's investigating those allegations. Yeah, it was. So the inquiry has been running for three years and has interviewed nearly 300 witnesses. And earlier this year, it summoned Zuma to answer questions about his presidency. 
but Zuma refused. The Commission then referred the matter to the Constitutional Court, which ordered Zuma to answer the questions. But again, Zuma refused, and he actually began verbally attacking the judges. Former President Jacob Zuma has once again criticised the courts. He took a swipe at the Constitutional Court for being biased. He says the court did not have the jurisdiction to hear the two cases brought by... All of this was pretty serious. I mean, you've got a former president who's arguing the nation's highest court has no power over him. And it's fair to say that this didn't go down well with the Constitutional Court. It ruled that Zuma was guilty of contempt of court and sentenced him to 15 months in jail. Yeah, okay. Um, What was the reaction among South Africans? Well, Zuma is very polarising in South Africa. So some people were happy, but others were really upset. Uh, We are in a situation of a war. Uh, We know that uh, anyone has got casualties. So now it's about Jacob Zuma. Uh, The things that they have done to Jacob Zuma shows directly that... Hundreds of his supporters, armed with guns and with spears, gathered outside his home forming a human shield to prevent police from arresting him. After some tense negotiations, Zuma voluntarily surrendered, but only 40 minutes before the deadline imposed by the court. He's not going quietly, though. He's asked the Constitutional Court to reconsider the jail sentence. But given his past few appeals have failed, I think it's ultimately unlikely he's going to be released. So with Zuma in jail, presumably for a while, what does this mean for South Africa more broadly? Well, the fact that a former president has been jailed is really symbolic. It's shown that the legal system is capable of holding powerful politicians to account, which is something that it's historically struggled to do. And the case is also really important for South Africa's current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, He was elected on a strong anti-corruption stance and faces a leadership contest next year that will determine whether he remains as president. So Ramaphosa really wants to look like he's acting on his promises. And as for South Africans more broadly, all eyes are on the ongoing Zuma inquiry. It's fair to say that when it hands down its findings, it'll be a major, major moment in South Africa's history. Since 2014, Russia and Ukraine have been locked in an armed conflict along their shared border. And while foreign powers have largely avoided direct intervention, it's recently emerged that a major non-state actor has attempted to get involved. And that non-state actor is none other than notorious American mercenary Eric Prince, who is best known for founding private military corporations Blackwater and Frontier Services Group. It may very well be one of the most controversial companies in our country's history, Blackwater, the secretive private army that, for critics, came to represent the ugliest face of American power. Yeah, he's got a bit of a shady reputation, Eric Prince. So what was he doing in Ukraine? Well, Josh, it's emerged that Prince visited Ukraine in 2020 with a series of ambitious proposals for the national government in Kiev. His general idea was to turn the country into a global headquarters for international private military operators. And to achieve this, Prince wanted to rely on Ukraine's disproportionate military capacity, which has come from years of fighting with Russia, as well as military expertise dating back to the Soviet arms manufacturing in the country. So what was he proposing exactly? 
Prince had three main proposals in mind. The first was to rely on veterans from the war of Russia to form a new private military corporation. Another proposal was to build a major munitions factory in the country, turning Ukraine into an even larger supplier of military material. And the third proposal was to consolidate Ukraine's aviation and aerospace industries in order to create a new firm that could compete with major international players such as Boeing and Airbus. So as you can see, these are some major ideas which could have set a significant precedent when it comes to non-state actors and access to military power. Gosh, so how did he go in the end? Was he successful in getting his proposals up? Well, it's worth noting that towards the end of 2020, Prince was making some significant ground in Kiev. He had a number of influential Ukrainian figures assisting him as he attempted to lobby the government, and there were several officials within the president's inner circle ready to lend a sympathetic ear. But as I'm sure you can appreciate, these kind of deals require US approval, or at the very least, American apathy. And Prince did have huge ties to the Trump administration, with his sister Betty DeVos serving as Trump's Secretary of Education. However, with the arrival of the Biden administration, it seems Prince's dealings in Ukraine have more or less come to an end, with the proposals being trashed. Is this the first time Prince has proposed something like this? Not at all. In fact, as you alluded to earlier, Prince has quite the reputation. Anger over civilian deaths involving the company Blackwater prompts a review of private security firms in Iraq. But who are they accountable to? And what role do they play in the conflict? This is insane. When he ran a group called Blackwater, his troops provided security for US and coalition forces in places such as Iraq. But in 2007, several of those forces were involved in the indiscriminate killing of Iraqi civilians, drawing unprecedented attention to the role of mercenaries in the U.S. war on terror. It was one of the worst killings of innocent civilians by U.S. contractors in Iraq. Security personnel working for the company then called Blackwater opened fire at Baghdad's Nisour Square, killing more than a dozen. Prince has also been involved in places such as Somalia, Libya, South Sudan, and the UAE. In the case of the latter, he essentially built a custom army to serve the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. So, as you can see, a bit of a shady character. What do you think this all means at a global level? Look, while his Ukraine proposal was knocked back, the fact that it was being seriously considered in both Kiev and Washington is proof of the influence of mercenaries and other private operators in global politics. The international community needs to find ways to regulate and monitor such activities so that we can avoid situations in the future where individuals such as Prince have unrestrained access to national governments. Le choix de l'ambition et le choix du pragmatisme, c'est-à-dire le choix de l'efficacité. That was the French Prime Minister, Jean Castex. He was announcing that the French government was being forced to backtrack on a big climate change commitment. You see, last year, in order to show just how serious he was about reducing emissions, President Emmanuel Macron announced a grand policy. Si ensuite vous me demandez de soumettre quelque chose qui n'est pas du niveau constitutionnel à référendum, je peux tout à fait le décider. He was going to amend the constitution to state that the French government would guarantee environmental protection and combat climate change. And it's a pretty big thing to change the constitution. 
I think it's fair to say that this was the centerpiece of Macron's climate reforms. But it's no longer going ahead. In order to change the constitution, both houses of France's parliament have to agree on the wording. And while Macron was able to get the amendment through the lower house, which his party controls, it was blocked in the upper house by right-wing parties. And so that's why a very angry French PM announced just a few days ago that the plan to change the constitution was officially dead. But I imagine changing the constitution was purely symbolic. It wasn't going to have any real effect on emissions, I'm assuming. Yeah, you're right. It was a largely symbolic move. But it was nevertheless an important one. Climate change has been emerging as a key concern among French voters for some time now. There is a real urgency. There is a real demand from citizens for change to be put in motion now. And we have the impression that all the democratic bodies have lost their power. Macron has been trying to portray himself as a leader on the issue, both within France and internationally. You may remember that he visited the US Congress while Trump was president and gave a speech about climate change. Because what is the meaning of our life if we work and live destroying the planet while sacrificing the future of our children? In keeping with this climate-conscious image that he's projecting, Macron has put up some concrete policies to reduce emissions. In May, his party passed an environmental bill through the parliament's lower house that will require state-funded canteens to serve less meat, it'll ban short-distance flights if there's an alternative form of transport that takes less than two and a half hours, it'll also block the expansion of France's airports, phase out advertising for fossil fuels, and place limits on plastic packaging. From an Australian point of view, those reforms seem pretty radical, but how have the French responded? Well, for the most part, they actually argue the reforms don't go far enough. Environmentalists and opposition politicians say Macron needs to introduce tougher rules. The urgency is really here. We have 10 years to really radically change things, and now we're just continuing to uh, take little steps forward. And it looks like voters agree too. When the legislation was announced, tens of thousands of people gathered from around France to protest. It was a festive atmosphere here in Paris, one of 160 marches and demonstrations across France. Thousands of people gathered to call on more action from the government to fight against climate change. And they may have a point. The original laws were actually a lot stronger, but lobbying from business groups has resulted in exemptions and loopholes. Of the 149 proposals put forward, just 46 have made it into the bill, and many have been watered down. France's High Council on Climate, which advises the government on climate change, has also criticised the measures. It says that, even if all the changes are made, France will still fall short of its Paris Agreement targets, which is ironic given the treaty was signed in France's capital. Yeah, it sounds like the government is facing mounting pressure to combat climate change, I guess. Definitely. Pressure is coming from all sides. So, for instance, the country's agriculture sector is demanding the government do more to reduce emissions. Earlier this year, France experienced extreme frosts that have been directly linked to climate change. And these frosts destroyed vineyards and crops across the country, 
resulting in roughly 2 billion euros of damage. The Rhone Valley area is expecting its smallest harvest in the last 40 years, with losses of 80 to 90 percent compared with normal. Wine growers say it will be necessary. French officials have described it as probably the greatest agricultural catastrophe of the 21st century. So pretty serious stuff. Then there's also been pressure from environmental groups, which have organised major protests over the last few months. Finally, there's pressure from the courts. A court in France has ruled that the French state is liable for inaction on climate change. This after a case backed by two million French citizens was brought forward by NGOs. The court in Paris... In February, a court in Paris ruled that the government had caused ecological damage by failing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Then, just two weeks ago, another French court ordered Macron's government to take all necessary measures to reduce emissions and warned that it might actually start fining the government for its failure to act. And all of this has started to raise questions within France about just how committed Macron really is to acting on climate change. He's up for re-election next year, and both the left-leaning Green Party and the far-right National Rally Party, led by Marine Le Pen, are emerging as key threats. And interestingly, both of those parties have committed to strong action on climate change, And they're beginning to argue that Macron is too weak on the issue. So if he can't convince voters otherwise, then the issue could help bring down Macron's presidency. So I think it's likely that we'll see Macron both on the international stage and also domestically really ramp up his climate policies even further. And that marks the end of this episode of The Wrap Up. Stay tuned for next week's in-depth episode, where Emma will be chatting with Harvard University professor Stephen Walt and the Young Diplomat Society's very own Annette McClintock about security and climate conflict. In the meantime, follow us, Global Questions, on Instagram or check us out on the Young Diplomat Society's website. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.